Welcome to Paradigm Shift, the podcast about the intersection of business and law. By changing yourself, you can change your business. Now, here's your host, Christina Martini. Welcome to Paradigm Shift. My name is Christina Martini, and I am your host as we explore the intersection of business and law. Today, we are going to be continuing our conversation with Joan Michelson about creating a greener world, current issues in the areas of energy and sustainability, and the opportunities and challenges for women entrepreneurs and leaders in this space. Joan is an award-winning business and communications leader, public speaker, and host of the acclaimed podcast series, Green Connections Radio, which was chosen in 2015 as one of the top six podcasts by USA Today. On her podcast, she has engaging, insightful discussions with top innovators and leaders in the green and energy space, especially women. Her blogs can be seen in Forbes, Huffington Post, and The Atlantic, among others. She is a specialist in the corporate responsibility, energy, and sustainability space, and a lifelong advocate for women in leadership. And she has worked with many different types of companies and organizations both large and small. Joan has a book coming out this summer, The Superwoman and Other Writings of Miriam Michelson, about her great-great-aunt, a prominent reporter who personally kept the suffrage movement in the headlines, interviewed Susan B. Anthony extensively, and was a best-selling fiction writer about women's empowerment. Joan also is the descendant of three prominent siblings who had profound impacts on our environment and on our communities. For example, Albert Michelson was the first American scientist to win the Nobel Prize for physics in 1907. Charles Michelson was FDR's White House communications director and press secretary. And Miriam Michelson, who literally kept the women's suffrage movement in the headlines as a reporter for both the San Francisco Call and the Philadelphia Inquirer. Joan, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much. So, Joan, we had an awesome conversation last, last session, um, touching on a whole host of different topics, including energy and sustainability, women and leadership, um, authenticity, the multi-generational workforce, uh, much of which we're going to touch on in, in this next segment. Why don't we uh, kick things off by talking about something that we touched upon in our last segment, which is some of the legal issues uh, that are really implicated and are touched upon with your business and in the area of energy and sustainability and the coaching that you do around this area? Well, I'm really glad you mentioned that because there are several. There's to patent or not to patent. That is the question. Right. <laughs> um, there And there are various theories on that, which you know better than I do, but you know, because patents are public, right? So um, there's and issues around trademark versus copyright versus patent, but there's also this whole issue of having a side hustle, which you and I talked about on my show, and it, you know, it was really valuable. And everybody I've talked to about that, I go, oh, wow, I didn't realize. Because people, a lot of times, people need to or want to build a persona outside their day job or they do, they do a blog, or they do a podcast, or they do a book um, 
to help share their expertise and raise their visibility so they're more uh, promotable or they get a new job or, you know, have more, have a better, increase their brand and reputation. But what they don't always realize is that their employer may own that product. Right. So they have to be really careful about it. And it freaks people out when I say that. Um, I think another one is um, who owns the IP when you're collaborating. Right. So, you know, if I'm helping a client create uh, speeches or content or fix their website, that's pretty obvious that they own it. But if we're collaborating to create a new technology, how does that work? Uh, And, you know, if it's my idea, but they're executing, you know, they're helping to execute it, or if it's their idea, but I'm helping to execute, I mean, how does that work and where are the boundaries um and when how do you negotiate that because you don't want to it's like negotiating a prenuptial it's like you don't want to hurt the marriage but you know you don't want to start the marriage off on a bad foot but you also want to prepare for when the proverbial hits the fan so it's that kind of a thing you want to do it when the relationship is good the other one is frankly um signing ndas so when do you need people to sign one when do you want somebody to sign one? Um, what's the boundary of the questions that they're asking and the deal you want to make with them? Because sometimes a lot of women especially run into this because they get afraid they're going to blow it, right? Um, but sometimes you just have to say, you know, I've told you as much as I can tell you until you sign an NDA. And I'm happy to work with you and I'm happy to share this with you, but I really need you to sign an NDA. Right. Now, some investors, as you well know, will not sign an NDA. Right. So you sometimes you just have to decide, but you also, it's also when do you protect it? And maybe copywriting or trademarking the name or the logo, which is a hell of a lot cheaper than a patent, is enough protection to start with if they insist on not signing an NDA. So right, if, right. And it also depends on what you would be trying to protect with an NDA, right? Because right. you know, I mean I think that, you know, if it comes to like your idea for a business and you're talking about the branding around it, what the market facing type of um you know, image would be and so forth. I think that sort of thing is much easier to protect through something, for example, like a trademark. But if you're talking about a process, if you're talking about, you know, developing a widget that is going to be the best thing since sliced bread, that's something that's a lot more akin to a patent. And then you've got to ask yourself the very questions that you just said, you know, how far do I want to go down this road with respect to divulging this to investors or other people I may bring into my business without having an NDA in place? Do I even want to protect it? through the traditional method of like a patent, for example, or am I going to treat this more like a trade secret? But, you know, trade secrets, a whole other animal in terms of the things that you need to have in place and for the way that the moon and the stars need to align in order for you to be able to have something that ends up being treated and protectable as a trade secret, right? Right. And there's also the issue of who is helping you bring it to reality. I mean, you know, everybody doesn't have programming skills, right? So if you're hiring a programmer, you obviously want them to, hi- to to sign an NDA, but then, you know, 
because you're paying them little to nothing or whatever the deal is, and, and they're inevitably getting less at an early, at a startup stage, or do you have to, you know, when do you promise them equity and when do you formalize that in a contract? Right. And also making sure that you're very in tune with, and this is, you know, this is very similar to the conversation we had. And so I would strongly encourage our, our paradigm shift listeners out there to listen to our session together from several months ago, because um, I, we, we really get into a lot of the nitty gritty of these topics, but also recognizing that even if you have an agreement with somebody and you're paying them to do some type of development for you, you need to be mindful of what the default law is with respect to who owns it. So for example, if you hire somebody as an independent contractor to develop certain things for you, like software, for example, or other things that would ordinarily be the subject of a license in terms of use between an owner and a licensee, you need to be careful about making sure that you have the bells and whistles that you need in that agreement that dictates um, what the relationship is between you and your independent contractor, because there are certain instances where the default um, under the law is that the independent contractor actually owns the underlying work and you as the person who asked for the work ends up getting a license, but that's often not good enough, especially depending on what your ultimate use of that product or that um, work would be. Well, and also if it's the idea of the person who would in that scenario be quote licensing it, if it's really their business concept and they're, they've already started developing it and they're just hiring somebody to finish it, then that's, but that person is being hired as an independent contractor, not as a full-time employee, then that's a different scenario yet still, right? Yeah. And so a lot of it is, you know, at the end of the day, it's a very fact-driven analysis and depending on what you have going on and your own personal knowledge of the law, um, you may need to get help from somebody from the get-go just to make sure that you have everything buttoned up the way you need it. Well, that's true. Um, and the, the catch-22 is, you know, a lot of times this is happening in a startup situation where budget is an issue and they don't have ten grand to spend on a lawyer off the top, right? So um, there's also, in my work, the other issue is, um, I don't know if you run into this with your show, but I find that, because I interview a lot of corporate executives, and a lot of times their staff wants to control some aspect of the output, which is really kind of a shocking to me. Um, and so I have to gently finesse that. Mm -hmm. and, and it's not, I mean, it, you know, sometimes I, it's not directly a legal issue all the time, but it depends on also where we're publishing it because I write for different places. So um, that's another kind of quasi-legal ethical, more of an ethical issue perhaps, but it, it, it borders on the line of legal issues as well. Yeah, you know, that's really interesting and I can understand um, what the issues are. What I try to do, you, you may have seen that I have interviewed a number of executives, for example, general counsels of various companies. And I actually, in my last episode, um, just started a new series uh, focusing on, um, you know, essentially conversations 
from inside the general counsel's office. And I featured Char Dalton, who's the GC of SECO. And, um, you know, her PR group at the company, I think, could not be happier with, um, with the output. And they've shared it through various so- social media channels. She's shared it on her own. What we really, you know, one of the things that I try to do to minimize any potential friction on the back end is to do what you and I did, for example, which is sort of to map out the conversation or at least highlight the areas. Um, and, you know, hopefully, and obviously I work with folks because this is a pre recorded show, you know, just to make sure that they're comfortable with it. But, um, you know, trying to manage it on the front end but also encouraging people to the extent that they think it's necessary to talk to their PR and marketing teams within the company just to make sure that they are okay with the fact that this interview is being done at all. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, usually trying to be mindful and, and, and steering clear of topics, for example, of issues that are happening at that guest's company that may, may cause controversy. I usually try to steer away from those types of topics, because those are the ones that the PR folks tend to be, um, I, I guess, concentrating on the most. Yeah, um, you know, I'm, I'm a trained, uh, trained as a traditional journalist, so mm-hmm. um, I do not, I have a little stricter style than that. I mean, I'll give people topics, um, but uh, first of all, a lot of times these PR people reach out to me in the first place. So sometimes- Oh, interesting, okay. Yeah, sometimes I'm meeting, you know, whoever at an event, but for example, I just interviewed an executive from one of the top um, <clears throat> technology companies in the world, and they reached out to me. Um, so they, everybody's different, and they're, you know, I have relationships with people that I've known for a while, and then their PR people will reach out to me and say, hey, you know, so-and-so's that we're doing X, Y, and Z, and so-and-so said to reach out to you, which is cool because it's like getting an exclusive, you know, kind of thing. Um, but it just depends. Um, sometimes they're uncomfortable with what the person said, and sometimes I have to ask a difficult question. So, um, And then if they get their knickers in a twist over it, I can always edit out that reaction. Um, but I'm not going to shy away from something that's really important and germane. I'm not going to pounce on something just for the sake of pouncing, but if it's relevant, try to think of an example that doesn't get anybody in a hot water here. But, um, I was interviewing a company that we're talking about how much they support women but they had just closed a deal with a highly chauvinistic, misogynistic company that has a record of not being very good for women. Let's put it that way. And I asked, you know, after their whole diatribe about, you know, we love women, I said, well, what about this deal? And they went, not going to answer it. Wow. (laughs) Not going there. Yeah, not shocking though, right? Right. No, but I would, frankly, as a journalist, I would be remiss to not raise it because it was like news and it was, you know, so you just choose. And then if you want to edit it out or leave it in, it's up to me. You know, it's not up to them. Well, I, um, I definitely see the hard hitting journalistic tendencies 
that you have. I think they're <laughs> awesome. And I experienced it firsthand when we spoke a few months ago, but I thought it was, I thought it was great. And we didn't really touch on anything that was all that, uh, you know, uber, con- you know, uber confrontational or, or, or anything like that. But I, I think it's awesome. I mean, I, I do think, and, you know, I sort of fancy myself as a, you know, legal journalist and, and business journalist too. And I hear you that, you know, you're asking the questions that pretty much everybody's thinking, right? And it's sometimes you get, you get the answer you're looking for in what is not said, right? Exactly, exactly. And um, I've also, as, as I, you and I have talked about offline, I came within hair's breadth of becoming a lawyer myself and, you know, being an investigative journalist and and a natural prober, I also built three litigation support practices. So I understand legal boundaries as well as the business boundary, you know, strategy side, as well as the communication side. I'm not, I'm not coming at this blind. So I can approach a subject like you would with a well-rounded perspective that is also frankly disarming um, because you're engaging them from a, from a strategic business perspective. And they like that. Right. Exactly. So let's shift gears a little bit and touch upon a a subject that came up in our last session together. And that is the multi-generational workforce and the multi-generational communities that has, have really been getting a lot of airtime, um, you know, for the past number of years, um, a lot of, there's been a lot written and spoken about with respect to the multi-generational workforce, the impact of the millennial generation, and now the post-millennial generation in um, our workforce and in our communities. And when you talk about a topic like energy and sustainability, which really in many ways is all about planning for the future, creating opportunities and a better place for um, for our future generations and the young generations of, of today. What are, what are your thoughts on the multi-generational aspect to, for example, the workforce in our communities? What are your thoughts on the impact of having multiple generations be part of the conversation on energy and sustainability? What have you seen with the work that you've been doing in this space? Well, you know, it dovetails directly with what you talk about. I mean, it it brings a paradigm shift. I mean, everybody comes from different experiences and it's not, it's generational, but it's even, well, first of all, we have five generations in the workforce today, which is more than we've ever had at once. And part of that is because people are aging healthier and, and being more engaged longer um, part of it is because women's careers evolve about 10 years, five to 10 years later than men's. And so a lot of women are hitting the peak of their career later. And so they're staying in the workforce. Um, and also it's financial, especially because we had a couple of recessions over the last 20 years. And so people are catching up, uh, financially. Um, and also the idea of retirement and the idea of when you start work at both ends is, is just the whole idea of how to do a career has changed. And so people take time off in the middle and they work longer or people um, 
work at different rhythms. And so it's really critical to allow the space for all of these types of people to exist. And this goes back to the issues with hiring practices, et cetera, because if you're, if you're only looking, if your algorithms are set, mental ones or technological ones, are set to look for certain types of backgrounds, you are leaving so many great ideas and so much great talent on the cutting room floor that you are shooting yourself in the foot. <coughs> Excuse me, not to mix my metaphors, but <laughs> you are. I mean, you're, you know, because people are adaptable. Think about it for a minute in the context of this. So, people who have been in the workforce a longer time are naturally more adaptable because they've had to be. They right. have dealt with different economic cycles. They've dealt with different business people. They've dealt with different situations. So to discard people who have been in the business or whatever in the industry longer is just foolish because they're bringing, it doesn't mean that you take every idea as the gospel. It means it, it, it's an addition to the conversation and it's history. I mean, as an innovator, I hate it when people say, oh, well, we tried that. It's not going to work. Because I come back and say, okay, so how did you, ex you know, when, what happened, how was it executed, et cetera. And then, of course, the other part is, well, you didn't have me executing it. You bring this historical knowledge and it informs what you're doing, but then everybody has input and you bring it to the present situation. So the multi-generational workforce, you know, it's so interesting because people are people. Just treat everybody the same. Treat everybody as a peer. If you treat everybody with respect, you get cool ideas, you get people who feel respected and a sense of belonging and value, you get, you get people who, who have fewer attitude problems. Um, when you, even if somebody is obnoxious to you, if you treat them with respect back, it's disarming. And eventually they come around because you didn't buy into their attitude. If you blow up at them, it's not going to be helpful. You can pull somebody aside later and say, look, that was really inappropriate. Or if you're a boss and somebody says something, one of your staff says something stupid in a meeting, you have a responsibility to pull them aside and say that was dumb. And here's why. Um, and, you know, call them out on it. Right. But there, there's also a matter of building a lobby in the room. So, you know, you have to, women in particular can get together um, informally and say, okay, so I'm tired of so-and-so and so-and-so stealing our ideas and claiming that they're there. So how about if when one of us presents an idea, another one of us chimes in and says, oh, Lisa, that's great. Or if if Lisa presents an idea and John picks it up, pretends it's his, you can turn around and say, oh, yeah, Lisa just said that. I liked Lisa's idea. And reframe it. But right. that's, it's not just about multi-generational. It's about interfacing with people with different ideas who come to the table looking differently, walking differently, talking differently. I just did a blog about assumptions. You know, we walk into a room with a billion assumptions. We walk into a coffee shop and we can guess what the careers are of people in the room, except that we might be wrong. The guy who's dressed in a suit might be negotiating a deal for a startup. 
the person with a nose ring and torn jeans and a t-shirt might be a corporate lawyer who doesn't have to be in court and is on a, a day off. I mean, you never know what people are doing and you never know what their story is. Everybody has had some kind of struggle in their world. So I don't look at it as necessarily multi-generational. I look at it as people who are different, who all bring different value and different experiences and different perspectives that we can all learn from to innovate great ideas and find creative solutions that work for everybody. That is amazing. I completely agree with everything that you said. I think that it's all about, again, I guess, being authentic, also being welcoming of other ideas, understanding the need to be open-minded and that just, you know, innovation is becoming critically important more so than it was before because of the acceleration of the speed at which, um, you know, business is developing, technology is developing, and for us to be able to get where we need to be and to continue at the trajectory that we need to be at, given how quickly everything's moving, what you just said is incredibly important and that we should really leverage the opportunity presented by having a bunch of different generations working together rather than making it a more difficult experience and not being open-minded about the ways um, that other people express themselves and the substance of those communications. Well, exactly. And, you know, and don't assume where somebody's coming from. In other words, if somebody presents an idea and you're judging it because they're older than you or younger than you, instead of doing that, just turn around and say, oh, that's really interesting. Tell me how you, you know, where does that dig into it and say, well, what do you mean? Or how did you come up with that? Or what do you think that, you know, what purpose will that serve? Or how does that work? Dive into it and let them to explain it further instead of just dismissing it or embracing it, no matter who it is. Attitude is more important than age. I like that. I think I may have to use that. <laughs> Attitude is more important than age. I love it. Well, there are things you can teach and there are things you can't teach. You can't teach attitude. That's true. You know, you can teach somebody to code. You can teach somebody, uh, you know, grammar. You can teach somebody certain th aspects of the law, but you can't teach attitude. You can't teach work ethic. You know, there's, there, you can't teach initiative. You're absolutely right. But you can bring it out in people. You can enhance something that's already there. Yeah, exactly. So Joan, our time together is up. Do you have any closing thoughts uh, and where can our listeners find you? Well, I appreciate that. I just want to say you're so delightful because you really do um, bridge these worlds and, and you, you bring people out in a way that addresses issues in a unique way in a unique way that really helps drive the innovation discussion. And, and I love it. Um, it's, it's really terrific. Um, thank you so much. My website is greenconnectionsradio.com and connections is plural. We are doing a survey to rename the show. So I'd love everybody's input who's listening and they can enter to win a free coaching or consulting session too. Um, if they do it ASAP, cause the drawing is coming up in about two weeks. So sign up on our website for our weekly newsletter for podcasts, including yours, about 
uh, protecting your side hustle. Um, and my blogs, um, they can also find me on forums as well. Um, they'll also get information on our mastermind groups, consulting, etc. Or they can find me on LinkedIn. And if they, you do reach out to me on LinkedIn, please include a note and mention that you heard me on Tina's show. Uh, greenconnectionsradio.com, iTunes, anywhere you listen to podcasts. And they can always Google me for that matter. Very Googleable. <laughs> Thank you so much, Tina, for what you do and for having me on your show. I really, 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 really enjoyed it. Well, thank you so much for, for being on the show. I've loved our conversation. Uh, you will definitely be coming back to, to, to join me in the coming weeks. Uh, you just, you are so terrific. The work you're doing is so important and your view on the topics that we discussed and beyond are, are, are just, your views are so invaluable. And thank you again for appearing on Paradigm Shift and I'm sure we'll see each other soon. Great, thank you, Tina. Thank you, thank you. Have a great day. You too. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Paradigm Shift. We hope that you've enjoyed our great conversation with Joan Michelson and that you will join us next week. I'm your host, Christina Martini. Please look for our weekly episodes every Tuesday. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and recommend us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Please visit us at www.paradigmshiftshow.com. We would love to hear from you. Please look for new episodes of Paradigm Shift every Tuesday.